Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Grace and peace be with all of you today. Listen, today is a very special day, as you can already sense in the room. Uh, how wonderful it is to share the same space for a moment, yeah? On World Communion Sunday, to not only gather in one space here, but to acknowledge that there are Christian sisters and brothers all over the world who are attempting to live into this mystery of the broken bread and the poured out life of Jesus. So today, I want to say a special word about this table, though, before we begin. I am really indebted uh, to my assistant, Rhonda Bird, and our worship ministry assistant, Leanne Shields, for making the table so inviting today. This looks so good. In a little while after the sermon, our pastors will be leading us in worship in a creative reading, a litany of prayer as we come to the table um, all over the world. So today we have bread from all over the world. We have Angera from Ethiopia. We also represent in this special reading Asia. So we have non bread. In the Middle East, we have pita bread. In Europe, we have Italian bread, or that's Italian if you're from Georgia. In Latin America, we have Cuban bread. And then in North America, sourdough bread. And you come on now. So as we, as we consider the table that spread before us, we acknowledge today that it's spread before the whole world. It's spread before the whole world. And the table that has this bread today will be wrapped up with clean hands and shared with our brothers at No Longer Bound. Uh, we'll be sharing this food with them so they can enjoy uh, the bread throughout the week. So today we find ourselves in a continuing study, right, of the book of Acts. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 8... We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Acts chapter 8, 26. And as you find your way there, I'm going to test my ear microphone. Can you hear me now? Okay. So I'm going to read, and you read along with me as we hear the Word of God from Acts chapter 8. Then the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and, and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do, do you understand what you're reading? He, he replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he, 
And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The, The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or, or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak and started with the scripture. He proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop and both of them, Philip, And the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Let's take a moment to offer our hearts and minds before the Lord as we approach the word in study. Let's pray together. Good and loving God. We recognize that there are days when more than technology goes wrong. We recognize that sometimes there can be a frequency that you are sending to us that can transform us and change everything. And yet if we are not on that frequency, it's just static. That's why we pray in this moment as we approach your table that you would do something through the agency of your spirit that really only you can do. We pray that you would take the open minds and open hearts of your worshipers and fill us with your spirit. We pray that where we may be anxious, you bring a peace of mind. We pray that where we may be afraid, you would bring a steadiness of heart. And Lord, if any here are broken, may they find wholeness in you, the broken and the poured out. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Can I ask a question? How do you deal with rejection? With rejection. I mean... Because live long enough, every one of us will experience rejection at some point. Somewhere, sometime, somebody will reject you. And we have our, our kids in the room today, too. So children, you know, sooner or later, you may know what it feels like, right? To be maybe picked last on the dodgeball game or maybe not picked at all. And I want you to pay close attention today, kids, because I'm going to talk about a person who felt rejected And we need to learn something about what God does with the rejected ones. But then maybe you're in middle school and you pass on through middle school into high school and somehow the kids who used to sit with you at lunch no longer want to sit with you. You feel rejection. Maybe you're rejected from the university of your dreams or the job that you just knew you were cut out for. What do you do with rejection? Because it can sting. It can feel like a a kick in the gut, can't it? 
In fact, there, there may be more science behind that kind of statement than we might imagine. A few years ago, there was a UCL, UCLA study done that was published in the journal called Science. It was a, an experiment on social shunning. There were 13 individuals who didn't know that they were a part of an experiment about rejection. And they were hooked up to these brain imaging, hooked up to some brain imaging technology, and, and they were experiencing mild and severe forms of rejection or being put off, thrown away, pushed back, cut off. And they learned that in the same parts of the brain and in the same way, the brain lights up when you feel rejected in the same way and in the same places where your brain lights up when you are physically injured. So in, in every real way, to be rejected feels like a kick in the gut. You can say that you have your feelings hurt and it literally be physiologically true. So what do you do when you are rejected? You could be creative about it, like this magazine out of California that, that is entitled uh, Rejected Quarterly. They only publish articles that have been rejected by other magazines. In fact, it's so hard for them to get published that you have to, if you want your stuff printed in Rejected Quarterly, you have to produce five letters of rejection from other magazines before they will print their stuff. I love their byline. They have a business byline. Here's what it says. Whatever other magazines want, we don't want. No other literary journal maintains such strict standards. First in the field of rejection since 1998. <laughs> Isn't that great? But I don't think anything can compare to the way one guy handled rejection when he applied for a position as an assistant professor at a university. He was rejected. And in his rejection, he decided to write a rejection letter about his rejection. And it reads, Dear Professor Millington, thank you for your letter of March 16, after careful consideration, I regret to inform you that I am unable to accept your refusal to offer me an assistant professor position in your department. Now, this year, I have been particularly fortunate in receiving an unusually large number of rejection letters. With such a varied and promising field of candidates, it's impossible for me to accept all refusals. Yeah. Despite your university's outstanding qualifications and previous experience in re rejecting other applicants, I find that your rejection does not meet my needs at this time. Therefore, I will assume the position of assistant professor in your department in August. I look forward to seeing you then. Best of luck rejecting future applicants. <laughs> Come on. Isn't that great? Uh, so good. And funny, right? It's funny... Right. And until it's not. Because, I mean, it's, it's okay to be rejected. Sometimes rejection can be a good thing. I mean, maybe you're not that great a writer. <laughs> maybe you're not as good on the field or the court as everyone told you you were, and rejection causes you to go back to practice and hone your skills and improve what you're able to do. So rejection can be an asset. You know, there's a, there's a difference I want to talk about today. Because it's one thing to be rejected for something that you can or can't do. It's another thing to be rejected for who you are. It's one thing to be rejected for what you can and can't do. 
But it's another thing altogether to be rejected for who you are. I don't want to talk about that for just a moment or two. This is World Communion Sunday. And we are mindful that there are millions of Christians all around the world today who will gather around a table and around some kind of bread and some kind of cup and they will break bread and share a cup to live into this mystery that his brokenness can make us whole. But we are also mindful that there are millions around the world today that for a variety of reasons will not feel that kind of welcome and will experience rejection, being cut off, shut down, pushed away, turned away, Everyone from the abandoned in Afghanistan to the hurting and the hope hungry in Haiti. From those who are terrified and terrorized in Eritrea to both Jews and Palestinians who are war-weary in a West Bank. There will be millions far away and nearby who will be rejected, pushed off, cut off from meaningful connection to life and love and community because of their ethnic identity, their racial identity, their political identity, their sexual identity, their religious identity, their their sense of place in the world. And I'm asking the question, does this table have anything to say at all to them because I believe with my whole heart that it does yeah and someone who agrees with me is the eunuch from Ethiopia now on the outside from looking from the outside in his life looked well connected it looked like he was a part of a meaningful community he was grounded educated resourced I mean he is the He's in charge of the treasury of the entire nation. He works in the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He has proximity to power and authority. When we, when we find him in this text, he's riding a chariot. He's not driving it. He's riding in it. The mode of transportation that is limited to only the wealthiest and the most well-connected. Yeah. And he, he can read He can read. He's educated in an illiterate society. He not only is literate in his native language in Ethiopia, but he can also read, apparently, Hebrew. Isaiah was originally written in Hebrew and then later translated into Greek, so it's possible that he was fluent not just in two languages, but possibly even three. So from the outside looking in at this person from Ethiopia, he had everything going for him. He was resourced. He had access to power. He was educated and yet you, you know, just like I know, that it's possible to so prop up a version of your life that looks so well organized, well connected, that you can appear to have a, a persona that projects connectedness and health and wholeness, and yet on the hidden place within the interior of the heart and the mind, you can feel as isolated rejected, cut off as anyone else. Several years ago, I was serving another church in Tennessee, and 
We had a new church member. She had just moved to town. She's a medical doctor. And she just opened up her practice after years and years of preparation. Now she's one of the new local docs and she joined our church. And, she, and everyone loved her. She was brilliant, funny, present, a whole life ahead of her. From the outside, it looked like she was living a dream. So no one understood what it was that would cause her one evening to take her own life. And just like in the case of every suicide, there is always one part of the story that we cannot know. And that's why many of us live the rest of our years with false guilt about maybe I should have said something, could have said something, would have said something, and yet we don't know because it's possible to be surrounded by what seems to be well-connected community, wholeness, vibrancy, and on the inside something be terribly wrong. The most haunting is that in her obituary, there was one line that I can't get out of my head. She lived and died surrounded by the love of friends and family. She knew what the Ethiopian eunuch knew and which many of us know. It's possible to look as if everything is just fine and everything yet be very much not fine. See, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was, he was a foreigner. He was a proselyte, which is a word that means a convert to Judaism. He was seeking community, seeking to be part of a religion that would welcome him because that religion has story and heritage. And so he converts, he makes a trip to Jerusalem. He makes this pilgrimage to worship near the temple, but he's always going to be an outsider because he's a foreigner. And in that custom and in that religion and in that sacred text, It said that someone like him, well, there were some spaces in the holy places where he could not go. Not because of what he could do and not do, but because of who he was. And he was a eunuch. Which, we're going to keep this conversation very PG this morning. You're welcome. But it means that he is a a male who was castrated so that he would be no threat or danger to royal virgins and the the, the royal house. And so now he no longer fit into the binary world of sexual identity. He was neither this nor that. And another reason why he could no longer be welcomed in some spaces in the holy places of Jerusalem. So there he is, no matter what he's done, to educate himself, to travel from far away, to work his way to a position of trust in the, in the royal court, no matter what, he would always feel rejected, isolated, outside of true welcome, even with religious people. Do you know that it's possible for any church in the world to spread a table like this and say that this is the Lord's table and all are welcome here and not really mean it, you know. See, for the last nine years, I, I've been saying some things to you that sound like this. We are all imperfect people with unfinished stories. We're imperfect people with unfinished stories. But if I really believe that, that means I know that when I take a piece of bread from the Lord's table, I know that someone else is taking a piece of bread from the Lord's table whose life 
actually symbolizes, represents everything that triggers me and makes me want to reject them, step away from them, ostracize them, or at least ignore them. And, and yet this is the way it has always been. Do you remember the very first Lord's Supper? I mean, the, the, the last supper when the Lord was eating with those closest to him before he was arrested and betrayed and crucified for our transgressions. He shares this table, but those who are around the table, who have a place setting at the table, could not be more opposite than one another. You have Simon the Zealot who's part of a revolutionary party that wants to overthrow the government, right? So the bumper sticker on his truck had, had, you know, down with Rome, right? But he's reaching into the bread at the same time as Matthew, the tax collector, who got a paycheck from Rome. Also at that meal, were the sons of Zebedee. They have a nickname, sons of thunder. They were known for a boisterous, extroverted kind of presence. They were full of energy. They were constantly sharing their opinions about things. And they're sharing bread, reaching into the bread and passing the cup to John, who wrote a whole gospel and never mentioned his own name by name. And they're both, with those different personalities and energies, eating the same bread and sharing the same cup. There are those at that table who were old and those who were young, those who were rich and those who were poor, those who were educated around the table and those who were fishermen and who, who were blue collar and white collar alike sipping from the same cup. And don't forget that Jesus, Jesus dips a piece of bread in a bowl and brushes against the back of the hand of Judas eating from the same bowl. Beloved, it's always been this way. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you have to know that all over the world, eating the same bread, the same cup, will be people, individuals, groups of people whose very lives represent something that triggers you to want to reject them, that triggers you to want to exclude them, or maybe worse, if you really knew who all was eating the bread and drinking the cup around this, the Lord's table, you may want to do the other thing, which is push yourself away from the table and remove yourself. And I say to you as your pastor, don't do that. Do not remove yourself from the table because if there's anything that this world needs from the church of Jesus Christ is a shining example of what it looks like to stay at the same table despite our differences, but because of the one thing we believe in common, that the broken body of Jesus and the poured out life of the Christ of God can make anybody whole. So we, we gather here and we come sometimes without even saying it out loud that we have assumptions that there are gradations of worthiness. We just sang a minute ago, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is, but we're not. And sometimes, though, we come to the table assuming that, well, I'm a little bit more worthy than at least this person. And I have a certain list of sins, yes, but unless my sins are a little bit more worthy than this person's list of sins and their choices and their background and their experiences, there are no gradations of worthiness here, beloved. If that were the case, none of us are worthy. 
So how do we come to a table? By, by simply remembering this. It's not our table. This table belongs to the Lord and all are welcome. In fact, would you, as an act of worship, just confess that into the universe here before God with me. Would you read that with me? It's not our table. This table belongs to the Lord and all are welcome. Yeah. Especially the eunuchs. So Philip goes to the eunuch because the spirit tells Philip to go approach him. The word is kaleo. The word means go attach yourself, go cling, go stick with this person and let nothing come between you and him. The word kaleo is used all through the book of Acts and we're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. And I could spend a whole sermon today. I mean, if I had some time, I could talk about the call of the church to kaleo, let nothing stand between you and the ones who think that they are rejected. Let nothing come between you and them, but stick with them, cling to them, to those who believe that they have no place at the table. So he goes to them and he says, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, how, how can I unless someone explains it? And Philip says, well, this is what you're reading. He explains that the passage that he's reading from the book of Isaiah is, is about this king a suffering servant king whose kingdom is now established in the universe. This is the king of the universe, but this king has established a throne not based on violence and power and authority and subjection, but this king has established a kingdom based on the relinquishment of his own life and has absorbed into himself all of the cut-offness that any of us could ever experience in the world. And he goes on to explain. Now, in the text that we read a moment ago, it quotes from Isaiah 53. It doesn't mention anything about Isaiah 56, but it does say that Philip kept on reading, kept on explaining to him from Isaiah. And if we had read it, you know what we would have read? And imagine, imagine the Ethiopian eunuch whose life has been defined by cut-offness in every visible and invisible way, rejected, despised, excluded. Imagine how he hears these words from Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Then they come to the first puddle of water they can find. And he says, baptize me. And he's baptized. And he experiences something that this table is intended to invite from all of us, no matter how you've been cut off, no matter how you've been rejected, despised by mortals, there's a place at this table for you to become whole again, to let God work on you in God's good timing and in God's good way to make you whole in the places that you have felt broken. That's why we come. And in, in just a moment, we're going to ask you to pull out your, your bread and to look at it for a moment after our reading and the reason we do this is because this is an opportunity for us to literally consume the awareness 
that we serve a God whose nature is to bring in the broken. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to be worthy. You just have to be hungry. You don't have to be worthy. You just have to be hungry.